And this morning we come to Ruth chapter 1 and verses 6 through 18. Ruth 1 verses 6 through 18. This morning we'll consider the moment of uh, Naomi's coming to herself. If you know the story of the prodigal son, you know that there's a moment where that prodigal son, as he's gone astray from the will of his father, he sort of has a moment of coming to himself and realizing, why am I living in the pigsty when I could go home and be blessed by my father? Uh, and in many ways, what we're going to read this morning is Naomi's sort of prodigal son realization moment of why am I living in this despair and misery when I could go home and be blessed by my father? Consider that this morning. Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 6 and reading through verse 18. Brethren, let's give our attention. These are the very words of God. Speaking of Naomi, the Bible says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. May God now add his blessing to our hearing of his word this morning. If you've read the Gospels, you know that Jesus had a lot of dopey disciples. Uh, you know that Jesus' disciples were not the best of the best, the cream of the crop. You read it, and sometimes you even find yourself going, when are you guys going to get this? Of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. We have the blessing of 2,000 years of Christian history behind us that they did not have. But you find yourself doing that. Lots of dopey disciples. And you think, surely somebody somewhere is the ideal candidate for a disciple. Well, there was one at one point who at least seemed that way. A young man came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, and this young man seemed to have a lot going for him as a potential disciple of Christ. In fact, if you really think about it, he is the ideal candidate for a follower of Jesus. 
This young man comes and first he acknowledges Jesus to be a good and wise teacher. He knows that Jesus has wisdom and he wants to learn from his wisdom. The young man comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He shows a concern for spiritual things. Would to God that more of our young men today would show more concern for spiritual things. This is a young man who's saying, I need to know above everything else, how do I inherit eternal life? And I know that I can go to Jesus and find out. This young man has what we would consider an impeccable record of living. Jesus tells him, keep God's commandments. And he lists a few of the Ten Commandments there. And the young man says, we assume, honestly, nothing in the Bible leads us to think he's lying. The young man says, Lord, I've kept all these things. I've, I've lived an upstanding life. I've lived a life that is sort of impeccable according to the righteousness that you can see. And Jesus says to him, okay, well, there's, there's one more thing. I want you to go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and I want you to come and follow me. And at that point, you realize the young man was not an ideal candidate for a disciple of Christ. The Bible tells us he had great wealth, and he goes away from Jesus saddened because he's unwilling to give up his great wealth to follow Christ. He looked like an impeccable potential disciple. But in reality, this young man had a deep flaw that Jesus could see. And Jesus could see that, in fact, this young man was not only uh, not an ideal candidate, but he was in grave danger in his soul. And Jesus saw that the young man had a, a grip around his heart. The iron grip of money was around his soul, and he was unwilling to give up his worldly comforts to come and be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He had come and he had asked Jesus what the cost was for eternal life. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And when Jesus told him what was on the price tag, the young man said, that's too much. I can't pay that. Anyone who seeks to follow the Lord at some point must come to this realization. That you come to this point in which, as the Bible says, you have to count the cost. You have to count the cost of what is it really going to take to follow Jesus Christ. And is that cost worth it to me? Is following Jesus really worth this? As we continue the story of Ruth this morning, we see this moment where Ruth is faced with that decision. Is it worth it for me to follow the Lord? For 10 years, she has lived with her mother-in-law, Naomi, a, a follower of Jehovah, the God of Israel. She has heard about his works. She's probably heard his word. She has heard about his miracles. And she's faced with this question now. Is it worth it for me to go and follow this God? Is the cost that I'm being asked to pay worth it? We see this morning her answer. She counts the cost and commits herself to following the Lord. All of this comes about in the context of Naomi's realization. As I said before we read the text this morning, Naomi has this realization of why am I still here? She's in the land of Moab. She hears, the Bible says, the good news that God has restored bread to his people. God has poured rain from heaven again. And now there is food again in the land of Judah, in Bethlehem, Judah. And she has this moment. Why am I still in the land of Moab? 
We came to this land 10 years ago. My husband died instantly. My two sons are now dead. And my two daughters-in-law are left childless widows like me. I'm going to go home. And it's in the context of Naomi going home that you have these two different responses from her two daughters-in-law. And here we see the breakdown of this relationship between these three women. Naomi feels God's discipline. She recognizes that what she is experiencing is the Lord's discipline against her and her family for their sins. Notice what she said in verse 13. She calls it, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She realizes that what she is experiencing is a result of God's hand being against her and her family because of their sins. But she also knows the mercy of the Lord, and that's why she's returning from Moab to the land of Israel. We see in Naomi a picture of what true repentance looks like. What does it really mean to repent? On the one hand, it means to acknowledge my sin and to recognize the hatred of God for my sin and the justice of God in punishing sin and disciplining me for sin. But also, true repentance includes a realization of the mercy of God. It's the way the Shorter Catechism details it in question 87. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, with grief and hatred of sin, turns from it unto God with the full purpose to endeavor after new obedience. True repentance includes both this realization of I have sinned and God hates my sin and I need to be uh, I need to give up my sin and turn from my sin. But it also includes the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ. Friends, true repentance doesn't just look like feeling bad about your sin all the time. It means that you realize your sin, you see it in its ugliness, and then you turn from it to God, knowing that he will be merciful to you in Christ. Naomi realizes the hand of God has gone out against me. But if I go back, if I return to the Lord, he will receive me. The word that's translated in the English in this text, return, occurs several times in this uh, collection of verses. It's a word that doesn't just imply a physical uh, relocation. It implies a spiritual reality as well. You see that, uh, for example, when Naomi talks about how Orpah goes back to her land, to her people, and to her gods. There's both a physical element to it, but also a spiritual element to it. So Naomi, intending to go back and return to the Lord, for a time is followed by her daughters-in-law. But we see that uh, Naomi has a tragic flaw, and it is that although she realizes that God will be merciful to her, she does not encourage her daughters-in-law in the faith as well. There's a moment that comes where she is encouraging them effectively to turn back. Go away from me. Don't come with me back to the land of Judah. Don't come with me out of the land of Moab. Go back to your families. She tells them to turn back to Moab in verse 8. And again, when, when Ruth seems intent to continue with her, she also tells Ruth again to go back. Naomi reminds them of the hardships that they will face. Even if they want to come with her back to the land of Israel, as verse 10 indicates they, they want to, she tells them, well, you understand, there's going to be hardships. She tells them, uh, I am too old to take another husband. And even if I could take another husband and have more sons, would you wait for them to grow up so you could marry them? She sees that there's, there's mercy waiting back in the land of God, but she sees that that mercy comes at a great price. And for these two young women, 
Naomi, we might think, would spare them the suffering of what she's going to endure. See, there's a moment, if we, if we are counting the cost, if we are thinking about what does it cost me to be a follower of God, a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to realize that there is a great cost attached to it. There is a tremendous cost attached to being a disciple of Christ and a follower of God. Jesus told his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. I know we all want to talk about the crown, but Jesus first talks about the cross. And Naomi, in this text, spells out what cross would be waiting for her daughters-in-law in the land of Israel. It proves too much for Orpah. When she is told of the hardships that lie ahead and the difficulties that would come with sticking with Naomi, Orpah turns back to her own people and back to her false gods again in Moab. In verse 10, she had told Naomi, along with Ruth, surely we will return with you to your people, right? She at first was saying, no, I want to come. I want to be with you. But when she was reminded of what it was going to cost, she said, that's too high a price. I can't do that. I'm going to go home. She's just like that rich young man who interacted with Jesus. The rich young man wants to follow Christ. He, he realizes who Jesus is. He says, Lord, I want to come learn wisdom from you. Teach me. Teach me. Receive me. Let me follow you. But let me follow you on my own terms. Let me follow you while also keeping the wealth that I've accumulated in my life. And when Jesus says you can't hang on to both, the young man lets go of Christ and he hangs on to his wealth. Orpah too, when she realizes the cost that it's going to take to follow God, to be a follower of the God of Israel, she realizes she's not willing to pay that price. And she goes home. And sadly, we'll never hear about her ever again in Scripture. Uh, Orpah, the only reason you might ever know her name is that I, I believe, if I'm remembering the story correctly, our, uh, our modern celebrity uh, uh, big star Oprah. Her name is a result of a misspelling of Orpah's name. That's the only reason you might ever hear about Orpah ever again in your life. Other than that, she fades out of the story of Scripture. She never again appears in the pages of the Bible. And, and friends, if I think that if we could ask Naomi, if Naomi is an inheritor of eternal life, if she is in heaven right now, uh, I think if you could ask Naomi, how do you feel now about your decision to tell your daughters-in-law to turn back? I think she regrets it immensely. Can I, I simply speak to you parents for just a moment, speaking as a parent myself. It is a great tragedy if we as parents let our children be led astray because of a concern for worldly things more than heavenly things. Naomi's ultimate concern for her daughters-in-law is what? What is she ultimately concerned about for them? Husbands, right? Make sure you have husbands, because husbands mean safety. Husbands mean security. Husbands mean someone to provide for you and to take care of you even after I'm gone. The greatest thing that Naomi thinks her daughters-in-law need are new husbands. Even when she tells them about the hard things that they might endure, what is the hard thing? Husbandlessness. I can't give you more husbands. Go back to Moab where maybe you can find husbands. 
I don't know if Orpah went back and found a husband or not. Probably she did. Ruth and Orpah were led to believe from this story. They're both young women. She's probably still a, a very attractive young woman, very marriageable. She probably goes back to Moab and finds a husband. But you know what she misses out on? The God of the Bible. She misses out on salvation. She misses out on eternal life. Parents, the greatest thing you need to do for your children is encourage them in heavenly things, things of God. And, and if by your actions, even if not by your words, right? We do this as parents all the time where with our words, we'll tell our kids that God comes first and that Jesus is most important and that following Jesus is the best thing. And then with our actions, we'll tell them something completely different. I'm learning as a father that my daughter is going to replicate the behavior that I most encourage in her. So dads, if the thing you cheer most in your children is you know, things like scoring the touchdown or doing well in school, and then when they come home to you and they've memorized a Bible verse and you just sort of, wow, that's you know, cool. You're telling them something. When you get more excited about Junior doing well on this test or scoring well in the, in the game or, or you know, shooting the winning basket, whatever the thing might be, when you're more excited and enthusiastic about that than about his walk with Christ, you're telling him something. Even if your words are telling him something different, your actions are communicating to him what really matters. Moms, same thing. We have a responsibility as moms and dads to, above everything else, encourage godliness in our children. Don't make the mistake that Naomi made. Don't make the mistake of dissuading your children from following God in exchange for something worldly. Naomi, in this moment, is not walking by faith. She's walking by sight. All she can see is her old age and her inability to produce husbands for her daughters-in-law. But she's forgotten. She's forgotten exactly what Elimelech forgot in the first sermon we considered last week. She has forgotten that God is the provider, not her. She has forgotten that she is not in charge of providing husbands for Ruth and Orpah. God, if it is his will, will provide husbands for these young women. And because she is walking by sight and not by faith, she leads Orpah astray, and Orpah will not go on. She turns back to Moab and to Moab's false gods, and we never hear from her ever again. But Ruth, thank God. Thank God, moms and dads, that God can overcome our poor parenting. God can overcome our lack of skill and even our faithlessness. Because even in this moment when Naomi is walking by sight and not by faith, God works in Ruth's heart to bring her to a moment of conversion. Orpah counted the cost and she said, that cost is too great. I don't want to pay it. Ruth counts the cost and she says, I'm willing. I'm willing to pay that price if it means being a member of the household of God. Ruth is converted. She has the same opportunity as Orpah did. She could go back to her family in Moab and go find a new husband back in Moab. But Ruth commits herself to following God by following Naomi, her mother-in-law, even though she knows it's going to lead to greater suffering. She knows that the path ahead of her looks hard. Naomi and Orpah walk by sight, but Ruth walks by faith. She knows that there is a cross. If you follow Naomi, if you follow God, there is a cross ahead of you. But she sees by faith that beyond the cross, there is a crown. There is blessing. 
beyond the cross. And because she walks by faith, because she can see the end from the beginning, she is willing to commit herself to Naomi, even though it means temporary suffering and hardship. I'm reminded of the time when Jesus was teaching about himself in John chapter 6 and teaching about his nature as the bread of life and called on people to eat him and drink him. That you had to have that kind of a commitment to him that was so close that it was like you had eaten his flesh and drank his blood. And many people, unsurprisingly, were turned off by that message. They were turned off by the message that eternal life meant following Jesus Christ that closely. And the Bible says in John 6 that many people who had been following him, they went away. He said, this is, this is too much. This is too weird. I'm willing to follow you, Jesus, to an extent, but don't go crazy. And Jesus went to the 12 and he asked them, are you going to turn back also? Are, is everyone going to abandon me in this moment? The disciples, in one of their moments of clarity, most of the time they're kind of dopey, but sometimes they get it right. John 6, verse 68, excuse me, they respond to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else could we go, Jesus? Even if, even if following you means hardship, we know that there's no other place we can go to get words of eternal life. Even if following you means taking up the cross daily and we don't like that and we don't necessarily want to do that, we know that there's no other option. There's no other path that ends up in eternal life other than following you. True conversion, to be really converted, to be born again of God's Spirit, it results in true commitment. There is no true conversion, Christian, where there is not following true commitment. You cannot claim to be converted to Jesus Christ if you are not committed to Jesus Christ. And can I also say, you cannot claim to be converted to Jesus Christ if you're not committed to the people of Jesus Christ. I know that in our American individualistic context today, we talk about personal relationships with God through Christ. And I meet many people in my ministry who uh, feel no need to participate in the life of the body of Christ. They feel no need to be a part of a local church. And they'll simply say, well, I have a personal relationship with God and I don't need other people. Well, God says that you do. God says that you do need other people and that by becoming a Christian, you're not just getting a personal relationship, you're in a covenant relationship between God and his people. And I want you to notice that for Ruth, there is no distinction between following God and sticking with Naomi. To do one is to do the other. When Orpah abandons Naomi, she abandons Naomi's God. But when Ruth commits to Naomi, she also commits to Naomi's God. She will forsake her old ways for God's ways. She will forsake her native people of Moab for God's people in Israel. And she will forsake her false gods and idols for the true God. And she says, nothing is going to separate me from you except death. She commits herself to God's ways. She commits herself to God's people. She commits herself to God himself. That's what commitment to Christ looks like. That's what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. It means saying, like Ruth said, where you die, I will die. 
There I will be buried. It means saying to Jesus, Jesus, wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Remembering that Jesus said that the Son of Man, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And you say, Jesus, if that's what it means to follow you, then I also will have nowhere to lay my head. That's what the rich man missed out on. The rich young man missed out on. He saw that reality and he said, I need somewhere to lay my head. I need a soft pillow somewhere, a roof over my head somewhere. But to be a Christian means to say to Jesus, Jesus, wherever you are, I want to be also. Your people shall be my people, Jesus. Whoever you want to be around, I want to be around. And your God, your Father, will be my Father too. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to commit yourself to Christ above anything and everything else. In researching for this sermon, I was reminded of some of my favorite words from one of the uh, apostolic fathers. Ignatius was the bishop of Antioch in the late 1st, early 2nd century, probably one of the uh, bishops who was right after the apostles had all died. And Ignatius, as bishop of Antioch, was arrested, and he was put on trial, and he was sentenced to death. And he was taken from Antioch to Rome. He was going to be executed in the city of Rome. And on his way, he wrote a number of letters to churches, kind of like Paul wrote letters to churches. And Ignatius wrote in one of these letters as he was thinking about his impending death in Rome and how he was going to probably be torn apart by wild beasts for the cause of Christ. And, And he was trying to tell people, don't try to dissuade me from this. Don't try to pull me away from this. Don't try to tell me to not go to my death here. I go gladly. He said in this letter, now at last, I am beginning to be a disciple. May nothing visible or invisible envy me so that I may reach Jesus Christ. Fire and cross and battles with wild beasts, mutilation, mangling, wrenching of bones, the hacking of limbs, the crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil. Let all these come upon me. Only let me reach Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to say, whatever else I have to give up, let me have Jesus. Friends, you and I live in a safe context right now. We do not have to give up much to be followers of Christ in our culture and in our nation today. Many around the world have to give up everything. But the call stands the same for you and for me as it does for believers in China, believers in North Korea. It is the call to forsake everything else. If only we can have Jesus Christ. If only I can have Christ. I'm willing to part with anything and everything else. That's what Jesus called us to. This isn't some special category of Christian. We talk about the martyrs, and and rightly so. They're exemplary for us. They're good examples of what it looks like to commit to Christ. But Jesus didn't say, super disciples lay down their lives for me. Jesus didn't say super disciples take up their cross daily and follow me. He said, if you want to follow me, if you want to follow me, take up your cross daily and follow me. To be a disciple of Christ means commitment to him above everything else. It means to say like Ruth, Jesus, where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me.
And the good news in Christ is that even death can't separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus anymore. Even death can't part the believer from their Savior anymore. That's the promise of God to all who commit themselves to Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for these truths. Thank you for the book of Ruth. Oh Lord, we thank you for the way that you work in the lives of human beings, simple, ordinary human beings, Lord. Uh, apart from this story, there's, there's nothing special about Ruth. There's nothing special about Naomi. Lord, we know that uh, they were simply two ordinary women trying to live out their, their sad, ordinary lives. And yet, Lord, through your power and through your work in them, Lord, you brought them to this point and you gave Ruth this commitment. And Lord, we see in her life demonstrated the, the nature of what it means to be committed to God. Lord, help us to commit ourselves to you. Help us, Lord, to lay hold on Jesus. Help us to cling to him, Lord, as Ruth clung to her mother-in-law. To say to Jesus, as Ruth said to Naomi, nothing but death could separate me and you. And Lord, thank you for that ultimate promise that we have in your word that, Lord, life and death, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, put those truths in our hearts that we might commit ourselves to you faithfully as the faithful God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.